Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, today covering the fourth part of the Sacrament of Holy Baptism and the Baptized Life. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Gold Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, as we get going here, as I said in the setup there, we are going to cover the fourth part, or as we mentioned in last week's episode, sometimes called the fourth question, but some of the parts, especially the first and second part, have a couple of questions in each of those parts. And so sometimes that gets a little confusing, but if we go back and forth, just so that you have that and make sense, but those are obviously related questions when there are a couple of questions, as we do here in the fourth part, you'll see how they relate to one another, namely that it just simply says, well, where in scripture do we find what answer we just gave to that question? So as we get going with the fourth part here, the question is in the small catechism, what does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. And where is this written? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Thus far, Luther's small catechism. All right, Pastor Bessel, go ahead and give us our catechesis lesson on this. And I just want to throw out there real quick, too, What a beautiful phrase there that you've given us that we're going to cover this fourth part here today and the baptized life. And I love how this Romans 6 citation here shows up in our funeral liturgy, especially in the Lutheran church, but the traditional funeral rites for the Christian church. Beautiful connection to a whole life lived in this. And then that's the promise of Christ that we rest in as well. So go ahead and give us our catechesis lesson on this fourth part and then lead us into the baptized life. You're right, John. This is a beautiful verse to consider that the entire Christian life is the baptismal life. The first three parts of the small catechism's teaching on baptism are about the baptismal act. And certainly there is one baptismal act. Ephesians chapter 4, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And yet that act is not a one-time baptism for a one-time benefit, but rather it is a one-time act for a lifelong reality. And that lifelong reality, then, is why we move from question three into question four. And so I'd actually like to start the explanation of part four, or 
question four, part four, however you want to use it. I'd like to start the explanation with a phrase at the very tail end of part three. And I think that movement that it hints at is right there at the very end, inciting Titus chapter three, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So in the Greek, just to throw out a little bit of Greek for our hearers, the word rebirth is the word polyngonasios, which means to be born again, a brand new life. The word renewal is a totally different word and a somewhat, I would argue, different concept. Anakinoseos is the Greek word, and it means the renewal having here been begun that now continues forward, the ongoing work, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in renewing the new man. There's only one other use for this word for renewal, and that's in Romans chapter 12. That's the only other use in the New Testament where it says, be transformed by the renewing or the renewal of your mind. So when they're at the end of part three, when it cites Titus chapter three about the washing of rebirth and renewal, I think you sort of get this transitional image there, one that goes from the act into the life lived, from that one-time moment to the lifelong reality, even as you say rightly, even unto the funeral, even unto the grave, and even unto the funeral and the promise there that we've been buried with Christ in baptism. And we'll get to that later on in the discussion. Uh, And so as we move then into the fourth part, This is why Luther asks, well, what does such baptizing with water indicate? He's not meaning by the question there that the baptizing with water didn't actually do anything, and now it's just sort of pointing forward to the great reality. But no, the baptizing with water actually did something there. And now what does that happening there, what does that happening mean for daily life and for the entirety of the Christian life? So rebirth in the giving of a new Adam, and you might even say that That first phrase in the phrase rebirth and renewal, that first word rebirth might even refer to the one-time act, meaning justification, the justification applied from the cross to you through the baptismal act, and that justification is done and complete. But then the renewal, you might argue, is sort of like the sanctification, the ongoing reality, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, that you are being renewed each day, and that's sort of the indication that you have in question number four, which admits that there's an old Adam, which is a wonderful admission in our catechism, that we are not now just this new man and only a new man. We still have the old Adam around our neck. Sadly, how many church bodies teach their people that if they are truly Christian, there's nothing about them left that they should recognize as being sinful. And then as people start to see themselves as sinful, And they start to recognize, wait a second, I'm a Christian and yet I'm still a sinner. Boy, that can drive some of these folks in some of these church bodies to despair. I've known people, I've I've actually provided pastoral care for folks who coming out of that American evangelical background, they're in absolute despair when they come to me and say, there's got to be a different gospel because I've been told that if I'm really a Christian, I shouldn't be sinning anymore because now I'm the new man. Well, this is why it's so comforting in our catechism that we Don't try to downplay or deny the reality that we are still sinners. The old Adam is still about our neck. That's not an excuse. We're not trying to justify the old Adam, but it is the reality of the baptismal life, that God in his infinite wisdom has given us a new man. But when we talk about the justification, we're not talking about the justification of the old Adam, nor are we talking about 
an attempt, if you will, to just improve the old Adam unto justification. You are killing the old Adam, and the new man is being sustained in this baptismal life. And so this fourth question is very helpful when we get to that. So we admit, first of all, that there is an old Adam to be subdued, to be drowned, that our sanctification is a lifelong process of daily wrestling against sin. Again, other church bodies also conflate these in ways to teach their people to live their whole lives doubting their justification. So on the one hand, you've got some church bodies that say, hey, you are so much a Christian that you shouldn't have any sense of an old man left. And then you have other extremes of church bodies that get this wrong. And they say, well, your justification isn't actually certain until you get to the end of life. See, this is part of the beauty of the Lutheran confession and the scriptural teaching on baptism, that when you are baptized, there is justification and it is done, right? The Father has adopted you. There's no threat that he's going to unadopt you. The only threat is whether or not your old Adam will convince you to run away from the family and, in a sense, divorce the family and try to stand on your own righteousness. But for the Christian, he can cling with certainty to God's promises because God will never undo baptismal promises. In fact, the idea of predestination, this is an interesting one in the scriptures because a lot of folks really struggle with this, especially in the American context in which you've got a uh, certain group of Christians who teach that predestination is your, in a sense, is your certainty of salvation. You're either predestined to heaven or you're predestined to hell. Of course, that comes from Calvin's theology. And yet what a comfort for the Christian that when you really read it, and investigate those passages of the scriptures that talk about predestination, they're always talking about it in the sense of comforting the Christian who worries, am I not Christian enough so that God might actually rescind my baptism? That he might actually say, you know what, I tried, but forget it. Uh, You're just not worth it. No Christian who is penitent needs to fear that God is somehow going to renege on his promises. And so, Sadly, you've got church bodies on both extremes, one saying your baptismal life is so perfect and righteous that you don't have an old Adam anymore. The other side saying you can't even be sure whether you're justified, and it's just a question mark all the way until the moment that you die. Those are two horrible misuses and misunderstandings of the Christian life. And so this fourth question teaches us rightly in saying, no, the Christian life is about living in sanctification because we have the certainty of justification, really wrestling with that old Adam, because we know that we don't have to be afraid that God is going to condemn us if we don't wrestle perfectly. Uh, And so we're not always looking over our shoulder, but rather we can just sort of aggressively go after that old Adam and say, you're not going to rob me of the joy that is mine. That certain joy is the motive for us to wrestle the old Adam. Again, that's different from some of those church bodies who get the teaching wrong, and they say, no, the motive is fear that you might not be saved, or the motive is to increase your chances of salvation. There's an interesting phrase in the Roman Catholic Church that says that the Christian life is about faith formed by love. Now, think about that formation for a moment, or think about the progression of thought there for a moment, that if faith is formed by love, then love supposedly comes, in a sense, first, or it is the stronger reality. And then love actually forms faith in the gospel. 
That's Roman Catholic language. But the scriptures are very clear that love is the fruit of faith. If I have faith in God, then I can love my neighbor. Apart from faith in God, I don't love my neighbor for my neighbor's sake. I love my neighbor to get ahead in life. I love my neighbor as a step stool for my own success before God and his righteousness. So this notion that faith is formed by love gets it completely backwards. Rather, the reality is that love is formed by faith. And that's what sanctification is all about, that I can have faith and confidence in the baptismal act carrying me as an adopted child of God all throughout my life so that I don't have to look at my neighbor and say, how can I love you in a way that benefits me? Rather, I can say to my neighbor, how can I love you in a way that benefits you? Not how can I love you and use you as a pawn so that I gain in righteousness, but rather how can I just love you just for your sake? Because I already have every confidence and certainty in salvation because of baptism. And so we wrestle with that old Adam. Um, you might even use the image of the stock market. Uh, now, these days, the stock market is always going up no matter what happens. It seems it's really weird, and I'm not one who's really into the stock market very much, but you just sort of notice that the trend is always upward. Uh, but, you know, it used to be, and it usually is in less weird times, uh, that the stock market would go up and it would go down, and it would go up and it would go down, and it would go up and it would go down, almost like a, a roller coaster at times. Uh, and then you look back over years, and you realize that it is higher than it was before, but not without a lot of wrestling, not without a lot of roller coaster type movement. And that's sort of what the Christian life is actually like, is that your daily life is one of wrestling. It's one of wrestling that you struggle with so that some days you feel like old Adam has the upper hand. Other days you feel like, boy, I, I've been a great Christian today, right? You can almost, you know, you can almost see where someone would take pride in himself for really having a good day. Uh, and yet, if we're being honest with ourselves, and when we get to the daily prayers section of the catechism, we'll see this, that at the end of the day, we're always praying for the forgiveness of sins. And yet, there are some days where you feel like faith is stronger, and because faith is stronger, it forms love more strongly. And then you have days where you feel like faith is weaker, that you've just been riddled with burden, guilt, sin, and therefore haven't been very good at loving your neighbor. And yet when you look back throughout life, the things that you've wrestled with calm down. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you can look back and say, yeah, you know, I'm actually in a better place than I was 10 years ago, at least in the strength of my faith, in my love of neighbor, in, in my love of my wife or my children or whatever the case might be. By God's grace, we pray that we can look back through life and see where we have learned in our sanctification. A good place in the scriptures to go to to consider these things is Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, which I think is a great chapter because you can't write, St. Paul can't write Romans chapter 7 if old Adam doesn't exist anymore, right? The very fact that Paul writes Romans 7 is all due to the fact that there's still an old Adam for the baptized, and the baptized still wrestle with sin. And as you read, you know, I'd encourage the reader or the hearer to go back and read Romans chapter 7 and just think about how Paul, here's this apostle chosen by Christ himself in a divine, miraculous way. And you would say, you know what, if there's one guy who shouldn't have to wrestle with sin anymore, it's St. Paul, because everyone knows that St. Paul is great. Well, guess what? Like everyone else, St. Paul was baptized. 
And like everyone else, St. Paul continued to be a sinner and have to wrestle with his sins. And so in Romans chapter 7, and if you go through a brief study on Romans, you'll see that, you know, chapters 2 and 3, 1, 2, you know, 1 is sort of the introduction, 2 and 3 is sort of about sin. Nobody's, you know, are all are guilty of sin. Nobody's righteous. No, not one. You know, the end of chapter 3 is that great Reformation text in Romans 3, 23 and following, 23 through 25. And then you got justification being discussed in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And then you've got faith's role in that in chapter 5 as well. And then you've got baptism in chapter 6, right? As we read in part 4 here, that we are buried with Christ in baptism. Baptism in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, you've got the baptismal life. And Paul is saying, you know what, that which I don't want to do is what I keep on doing. What I do want to do, I don't do. And yet what I don't want to do is what I keep on doing. And he just is sort of pulling out his hair, saying, I am a wretched man, right? A wretched man that I am. Who will save me? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus. So, you know, in Romans chapter 7 there, you've got that whole wrestling. And again, his comfort and his confidence in Romans chapter 8 is that God does not renege on his promises, but he has elected us, he has promised us, he has delivered us in Christ Jesus, he is faithful to us. And because of God's faithfulness, I can very boldly wrestle, knowing that I'm not going to wrestle perfectly, but that I don't have to wrestle perfectly in order to gain righteousness. Therefore, I can wrestle freely, I can wrestle boldly, I can wrestle with great confidence and great courage, knowing that it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So now, what does the image of being buried and drowned teach us? It teaches us, again, that we've already died with Christ. And as I just said, the life that we live, we live to God, but it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And that comes from Galatians chapter 2. And again, what a great comfort for us that sanctification is not about proving to God that I'm worth saving, as if justification is still in doubt or in question. But sanctification is the process of me being made holy by the one who has already declared me holy. And the one who declared me holy did that instantly by adopting me and saying, all right, you belong to me. And by the fact that you now own the family name, you are credited as being holy. And yet, He's also then going to teach me and raise me up in the family. And by that process, over a whole lifelong reality, is going to be that process of being made holy. And that process doesn't end until death. Because guess who dies in death? Not the new Adam. The new Adam is already with Christ at death. And he's immediately with Christ Jesus. It's the old Adam that dies at death. And it's the old Adam that we say good riddance to. And when the old Adam dies at death, then that reality of our baptismal burial with Christ is manifested and the image is, is so perfectly seen that we can understand it at the funeral, as you made reference to at the very beginning, that when we start that funeral and we start it with these words of Romans chapter 6, it's a hint that the one who was baptized into Christ Jesus, whose body is now being buried, that's an expected reality because from our very baptism, we have been buried with Christ and we have run our course in faith. We now rest from our labors of sanctification because we are now perfectly sanctified in the heavenly places, awaiting the glory of the resurrection. So justification in baptism and the baptismal act produces sanctification. 
The two begin at the exact same time. Justification is complete already. Sanctification, a lifelong process. I can be certain of my safety before the judgment seat of God as we constantly say in our confession of sins, for the sake of your son, right? For Christ's sake, I can be confident. I can be certain. I can be certain because God does not look at my righteousness. He looks at Christ's righteousness. And yet, and therefore, I should say, because of Christ's righteousness, I can wrestle freely unto increasing sanctification with the help of the Holy Spirit who's been given me in baptism. And joyfully then I go on and I press on toward the everlasting life that awaits me. And so, as we said, what does this sanctification look like if the new man should daily emerge and arise in righteousness and purity forever, right? That's the last phrase there in the fourth part before the second question of where it's written that the new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. And that sounds like it's expecting a lot out of the new man, because we know that daily we don't arise in absolute righteousness and purity, but we do arise every day in Christ's righteousness. And we do get out of bed every day in Christ's purity. And as we'll talk about when we get to the daily prayers, we go about our day rejoicing that I live in Christ, and therefore desiring what Christ's heart desires. This is the joy of sanctification. The joy of sanctification is to say that there is nothing better in uh, heaven and earth than the holy will of God. And I don't have to be afraid of that holy will anymore because I'm the baptized. That holy will no longer condemns me, but rather now it is a wonderful instructor. And therefore, I can go through and wrestle in daily life. This is sort of, if you will, third use of the law, isn't it? Or third function of the law is the instruction element. That yes, first we have to curb sin, we have to point out sin, and then it instructs. And it instructs us how to rejoice in daily life because we live in the joys of baptism and in the safety and certainty of baptism. And as we said before, it will, you know, daily life will at times feel like a stock market and like a roller coaster. In fact, I've often had the occasion where new members, especially those, uh, honestly, who come from an American evangelical background, who they will come in for pastoral care after they've been here about a year, and they'll say, Pastor, you know, I expected that I would be a better Christian now. And I said, now, wait a minute here. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that you are going to wrestle. And guess what's going to happen when you come into the purity of doctrine and the pure joys of life with Christ? The devil is going to do everything he can to pry you away from that so that you're going to feel miserable at times because he's going to try and point out to you that supposedly this doctrine is not going to help you with the quest that you have, if you will, for finding the comfort of conscience or a clear conscience before God that you didn't have in your former church teaching. But you can have that clear conscience specifically because you continue to be the baptized, not because every day feels like you're getting more holy, more righteous. Uh, In fact, I often will tell members who've been members for about a year, and I'd encourage pastors to think about this too, once they've been members for about a year and they've come from, especially come from an American evangelical context in which everything is about emotion and everything is about, in a sense, constant improvement, I will tell them about a year, after about a year, you know, the novelty of this is going to wear off. 
and you're just going to feel this daily grind because the devil's going to work hard on those who are closest to Christ. He doesn't have to work hard on the world. The world already is full of people who don't want Christ, who reject Christ. So he doesn't have to work on them. But as we get near to Christ, as we are brought near to Christ by the Holy Spirit, the devil's going to work even harder. Uh, sometimes you might have heard the phrase, and sometimes I'll remind folks of it, especially adult converts who are baptized. I'll say, you know, as Christ has placed the cross on your forehead and in your heart, the devil has placed a target on your back. And so you shouldn't expect the Christian life to be easy now. The devil is going to work very hard. And therefore, the stock market roller coaster, this notion that you're going to have up days and down days, and hopefully, as you look back throughout life, you can rejoice that one of the things that used to plague you now no longer plagues you. And yet we're always going to have these temptations. As we wrestle and we know our sin, we're always going to be tried by something because the devil's always going to look for new inroads. And so sometimes, you know, if you're in your 20s or your 30s, you are really being attacked by sexual temptations. Uh, Maybe in your 40s and your 50s, you're uh, attacked by temptations of envy or coveting because you look at what other people have been able to accomplish for themselves in, in daily life, and you forget that this is daily bread and not just individual success and accomplishment. In your 60s and 70s, maybe the fear or the temptation is to worry about money, because now you're entering into years of retirement or preparing for years of retirement. You know, 80s and 90s, uh, you know, I joke that maybe the temptation is something regarding bingo because we all like to play bingo when we get a little bit older. Uh, But maybe the temptation is the fear of death or the fear of dying or the fear that maybe you haven't lived life as fully or quote unquote as righteously as you expected yourself to. And now what? Well, now the answer is the same as it was when you were not 80 and 90, but eight, nine or eight months and nine months. It's the same reality. You're a baptized child of God. And therefore, as a baptized child of God, we can always joyfully wrestle with proper expectation, with a level head, but with the certainty of Christ's righteousness and of our salvation. And as we wrestle and as we know our sin and as we keep our eyes on Christ's righteousness, then we may see the comfort of this sacrament of daily life wrestling, which really is the fifth chief part, confession absolution. This really now, that section of the catechism that we're about to get into is really the look at the Christian daily life. I think this is a really important point that you've made here, especially as you kind of hinted at there for at least one second, was the common talk out there in a lot of American evangelicalism is that we progress in our sanctification. I think that can lead us to the wrong understanding, as you then more fully talked about, which was that there's this idea that I should be daily improving, but then when my life doesn't reflect that, well, then that creates quite a conflict for me, right? And sometimes you see out there, especially shared by us Lutherans on social media and things like that, different images of what the life really is like in the sanctified life, right? That uh, one of my favorites is that, you know, you have a person kind of going up an escalator, but they keep kind of falling down a little bit and stumbling and so forth, but it keeps pulling them up. And one of the terms that I've adopted in my catechesis is that I talk about we go deeper in our baptism, which I think then leads us to what we'll pick up on the other side of the break here, which is what you set up there for us, confession. As I realize that I go deeper in my sanctified life, which is not always, you know, it's going upward in the sense that Christ is leading me by his grace to our upward calling in Christ to his heavenly graces. 
It's by his pure mercy and grace, but yet it doesn't always look like it's improving, right? And so uh, how do I then wrestle? And that's uh, exactly the connection that you set up there for us into the next chief part, which is confession, which we will pick up on the other side of the break with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue our series, The Catechized Life, and today covering the fourth part of the Sacrament of Holy Baptism and the Baptized Life, which as we set up with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel, just before the break there, the progression in the catechism just all throughout is just genius. We've continued to uh, talk about that and point that out here on this show. Martin Luther definitely did a fantastic work in putting together the catechism in a very simple way. Of course, catechism, nothing new. We've talked about that before. But the small catechism that Luther organized and the simple progression here, it's a logical progression from baptism to confession and absolution, which is our next chief part that we'll have our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel, talk about here is that you see that this is part of the baptized life. And so I'm very thankful that you've kind of used that term here for us, Pastor Bestel, in how we see this progression then from baptism into confession. So go ahead and uh, take that away for us, how this is part of our baptized life here and that wrestling that you were talking about in the first half of today's show. Absolutely. And you set it up for us well when you finished the last segment by talking about getting deeper into our baptism that really what confession absolution is, is this daily life wrestling that sort of spins in circles, right? It's like you're a hamster running on the wheel. And as you go through life and you wrestle with these things, you wrestle with temptation, you wrestle with sin, you wrestle with all the consequences of these things, your comfort and your certainty in all of it is by the gift that God gives in what I would argue is not you running back to your baptism, it's him running you back to your baptism. And I think there's a huge difference in that very subtle point. You don't run back to your baptism and reclaim it for yourself all the time, but rather God comforts you and says, now, wait a minute here. And he instructs you and says, now, wait a minute here. You're still a baptized child of God. Uh, You can still grab hold of this promise because I am not letting go of it. You are baptized. You are my adopted child, and therefore you can keep wrestling, and I will not condemn you. And so it's a very comforting thing, this section on absolution, this section on confession and absolution, and this fifth chief part of the catechism. When we talk about confession, you know, I sort of wonder sometimes, and I don't have any uh, research to back this up at all, I, I wonder if Luther termed this as confession simply because it's the word that his people would have known. After coming out of generations, of course, of Roman Catholic theology, would they have only known, in a sense, the word confession or known that so well as part of daily life? Because that's all they knew for their whole lives was this idea of confession. 
Is that why Luther keeps that term rather than focusing on the great reality of absolution? Now, I don't know, but it's an interesting thought. And why do I say that the people would know the term confession better than absolution? As Lutherans, we know the term confession and absolution sort of hand in hand uh, or hand in glove even. And so why would I make the argument that Luther thought that his people knew the term confession better? Well, remember how Rome spoke of confession, and this is why Luther begins his explanation, confession has two parts. Because in Roman Catholic theology, as the people had been steeped in their whole life up until the Reformation, in Roman Catholic theology, there are three parts to confession. First, that you confess your sins, which is to speak the words. Second, in Roman Catholic theology, was contrition that not only did you speak the words, but then in a sense, you also had to prove that you felt it in your heart. There had to be this deep sense of remorse over it, and sort of sufficiently so, to prove to yourself that you're actually sorry, or to prove to the priest that you're actually sorry. So you had confession, you had contrition, and then you had the third part, and we as Lutherans would say, oh, well, that should be absolution. No, the third part was satisfaction. In a sense, and I know there would be some debate as to what, whether satisfaction was actually making atonement or not, but in a sense, that's sort of what the Roman Catholic person was sort of being instructed toward, was, okay, now, in order to improve, here's what you're going to do, or in order to prove that you are really sorry, to prove that the absolution should take hold, whatever you were trying to prove, you were instructed, go say your Hail Marys, go say the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father go say the rosary. And so you would go uh, with the rosary, you'd you know, count with on the beads how many times you'd said the Hail Marys until you finish that act of satisfaction. And then you can have a clear conscience. But notice what's missing in all of that. What's missing is absolution. People were never taught the joy and the comfort that you have a God who freely forgives, who absolves, who simply forgives. And this is why when you look at the definition here in the first question, what is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution. Notice that as he goes on now, notice how Luther actually has to define it for the people. Second, that we receive absolution, that is forgiveness, right? So that we understand that the word absolution is nothing other than having this great comfort and joy that our sins are being forgiven right there and then before God in heaven. And so two parts to confession. First, that we confess our sins. Second, that we receive absolution. That is forgiveness from the pastor is from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. And so when we consider the first part, if we're going to break this into two parts here for this next 25 minutes or so, if we break this into two parts, what does it mean that we confess our sins? Well, think about this word carefully, and I think Lutherans should think about this word carefully because the word confess is synonymous with, but it is not identical to, if you will, the word repent or the word sorry or the phrase be sorry for my sins. And it's not identical in this sense. One can feel sorry and one can repent with the heart, but confession implies verbalizing. When you think about it, you don't confess the faith with your heart only. You confess it with your conduct. You confess it with your lips. 
Uh, You confess it on Sunday morning with your lips, either by some of the creedal hymns or most commonly the Nicene Creed, or in your daily life, you confess it with the Apostles' Creed, with the Creed of our baptism, Uh, every now and then the Athanasian Creed, as, as we know from church practice. But we are always confessing with our lips and also with our lives. And therefore, when we talk about the idea that confession has two parts, first that we confess our sins, that implies that we actually articulate our confession of sins. It implies that we actually wrestle with this to the point where we acknowledge not only to ourselves, but to God and to neighbor and to pastor, perhaps, the sins that we are wrestling with. You know, in a sense, I would say it this way, what good is it for our neighbor's sake if faith is going to help us increase in love? What good is it if we repent in our heart, but never repent to our neighbor? Then I might feel better that my sins are forgiven, but my neighbor is still carrying all the burden and weight and scars of me having sinned against him. And so what joy to be able to say, in faith in God, knowing that my sin is forgiven, I may still go to my neighbor and reconcile. So confession has two parts, that we confess. And so as we confess the creed, the confession of sins is no different, not with the heart only, but also with the lips. That doesn't mean that confessing our sins with the lips somehow merits God's forgiveness, as if he forgives because of how well we've done in confessing, or whether we've enumerated all of our sins properly. You know, uh, famously, uh, Luther is known as, at least as the tradition is handed down, as taking up all the time in the confessional box as a monk because he felt like he had to be able to articulate every little sin that he knew, and then he would leave the confessional box and be reminded of another one and go running back into the confessional box because he was trying to articulate each and every one. We ought wrestle with our sins, and we ought confess them. And yet that does not mean that we have to somehow merit God's forgiveness, uh, as if I say, God now owes me forgiveness because I've confessed well enough, right? So sometimes we'll get the question of, well, how do I confess well enough or something to that effect? Or how do I know that I've confessed well enough that God will forgive me? It's not about how well you've confessed. It's about the fact that you've confessed. And it might not be a perfect confession. If we had to wait for a perfect confession, we would never be forgiven. Because just as we're sinners in what we do, we're also sinners sometimes in how we remember and admit our sins. Sometimes we admit it in a way in which we even sort of try to put the blame on someone else, right? Every pastor knows a situation where someone comes in for private confession and starts telling uh, the pastor what that person doesn't like about the person they sinned against. Well, that's not confession. And so it's helpful for the pastor to have that opportunity to instruct the individual. And we'll get to that in a minute. So It's not that our confession merits God's forgiveness, as if he forgives because of how well we've confessed, or because our confession forces him to keep his end of the bargain, right? We're not coming to him in confession as if we're on an equal playing field. We're not coming and saying, okay, I'll do my part, and then I expect you to do your part. But rather, we're coming as beggars, and we're realizing he already knows, right? That's what it means to confess. We confess because we know that he knows. And therefore, we're only confessing what he already knows, and so we might as well be brutally honest with him and with ourselves. 
right? You can't hide the truth from God, especially as you know that he knows. And so why in the world would we try to downplay our confession? The only reason we downplay our confession and try to minimize it and sort of sweep it under the rug or say as little as possible is because we're pridefully ashamed to be considered sinners. Uh, And sometimes we think that we can deceive God regarding our own righteousness, that, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit of a sinner, God. I'm, I'm not as bad of a sinner as that Christian over there is, but yeah, I'll, I'll confess that I'm a little bit of a sinner. No, we should just let everything lay out on the table because God already knows it anyway. We're only deceiving ourselves. Isn't that exactly what John says in his epistle when he says, if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice he doesn't say we deceive God. You can't deceive God. God knows your sin, so why not just be honest about it? But rather, we deceive ourselves. So sometimes people are perhaps unwilling to repent or confess and verbalize because they're pridefully ashamed. Other times, people are so terribly broken by the law, and they're afraid of God being angry. But again, he already knows. And in a sense, that's actually a very comforting thing for those people who think that God will just be angry. If he already knows, then in a sense, if he wanted to strike you down, he would have already because he already knows. And yet he calls you to repent and he patiently and gently brings you to forgive. God could, if he were an angry, wrathful, vengeful God, he could condemn you on the spot. He wouldn't have to wait for you to repent. And going back to the idea of not meriting the forgiveness of sins or not bargaining with God over the forgiveness of sins, even after we repent and even after we confess, if God were an angry God, he would be justified in condemning us. Again, he doesn't owe us forgiveness. There's a great passage in the book of Joel, and it's read every Ash Wednesday, where it says, uh, you know, all the solemn assembly and gather the whole assembly together, the infants, the nursing children, everybody. And it says that as we repent, it says, who knows, perhaps the Lord will relent and leave a grain offering and a drink offering behind. That's an interesting comment in the prophecy that it says, you know, it sort of hints and implies God could, if he wanted to, he could just condemn us all, even after we repent. He doesn't owe us anything. We're not coming to him saying, okay, look what we've done now in confessing. You should be so happy with our confession that you should forgive us. But rather, we come as beggars. Uh, We come as those who've broken the lamp or broken the window or done whatever sin that we've done. And we've just, all we can do is acknowledge that we know you heard us break the lamp. We know you saw us break the window. uh, Or we know that you know the secrets, you know, what we have done in in the secret places and some of those things where we think that perhaps we're by ourselves. Uh, Jesus, remember the one time, says to Nathaniel, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. We don't know. The Scripture doesn't say what that whole situation was about. Sometimes I wonder, you know, was Nathaniel angry in sin, doing something in sin that he assumed that no one knew? And yet God always knows these things. And so when we confess, we're not making God aware of something that he didn't know before. So we can just be open and honest, not only with him, but with ourselves. And as we are honest with ourselves and we are beggars who say, I need God's grace, 
then not only does God not want to condemn, but he won't because Christ's sacrifice was perfect and therefore actually atoned and paid for those very sins over which you're now fretting. So that God would not be just. Think about this. God would not be just if he condemned those who hide in Christ's righteousness. Consider 1 John again, from 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us. But as we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, faithful, meaning faithful to his promised gospel, he promised that he would send the Messiah, he did send the Messiah, and now he remembers the Messiah, and therefore he is just. He will not give double jeopardy. He will not try you again for a sin that has been placed on Christ Jesus. So you can come and openly repent. You can come almost, if you will, in joy and relief, and you can say, this has been so burdening me. Uh, Remember the psalm that says, uh, where the psalmist says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Right? When we're trying to hide things from God or from our parents or whoever, man, it's like the, you know, everything around us or everything that we say or every little hint that they say makes us assume that they know because we have such a guilty conscience. Our parents will say something like, how was your day today? And in our minds, we're saying, oh, no, they know, they know, they know. Well, they probably don't know. It's just that we're so burdened in conscience and so ashamed and yet in our pride trying to hide it. We might as well just come right out and openly confess because we have a merciful God who not only has adopted us, but is patient with us and is forgiving of us. As Romans chapter 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why he forgives us, because we have a mediator. We have an intercessor not because we deserve to be forgiven. God doesn't listen to our confession of sins and say, wow, that was a very good confession. I think I'll forgive you. Or, well, that sin wasn't all that bad, so I think I'll forgive you. No, he listens to our sin, and then Christ, our advocate, appeals on our behalf and reminds the Father, Father, I died for that sin too. This child is still your baptized child. And the Father says, yes, that he is so that we can have great confidence and certainty and joy when the declaration is then made, I forgive you all your sins. And so we confess because there's nothing else we can do, no point running and hiding, no point trying to argue our case, but there's also nothing else we need do. We don't have to try to earn it. We don't have to try to bring our own sacrificial offering and say, please, Lord, find a way to be pleased with me. Think of the prodigal son who when he was coming back to the father, remember after he'd run away or gone away with all of the inheritance and he'd wasted it all, and then he's uh, wishing that he could eat the slop of the pigs and things like that. And then he's and then on the way back, he starts to try to think of how he might bargain with the father to allow him to come back as a servant into the household. And he says, you know, maybe I can bargain with him. And when the father receives the son back, he won't have anything of bargaining he just forgives. He says, you're my son. You're my son, and all of this belongs to you, right? And that's exactly the comfort and the confidence that we, as those who are baptized, as those who are sons of the Father, uh, and yet sometimes we wander and get a little bit prodigal, if you will, then when we openly repent and realize, I have no reason to hide this from God because he already knows about it, but rather we openly repent, 
and we confess our sins, and God is faithful and just. But then there's the second part of this opening question about confession. Second, Luther says, we receive absolution, that is forgiveness. We actually there and then receive it. And that's a really comforting point. We're not just being reminded that we're sons of God. We're not just being reminded that God is gracious to us. We are actually there and then in that moment receiving the judgment of not guilty from the Father who is in heaven. The judgment of forgiven, of once guilty, now no longer guilty. We are receiving that judgment that says, you still belong to me and you still belong in this household. What a comfort. Some people refer to it as baptism reapplied or, uh, you know, being in a sense almost like a baptismal rebirth every day. I don't know if I'm terribly comfortable with that. I would rather point back to, again, that phrase in Titus chapter 3, that it's the renewal that is happening every time that God forgives our sins. It's part of the renewal of that rebirth that is ours in Christ Jesus. So it's not the baptism that is failing, as if, of course, nowadays, right, all the talk nowadays is needing a booster shot. Well, that implies that the antidote is failing, that the vaccine is failing. But baptism doesn't fail us. Baptism doesn't need a booster shot. So that's why I'm not a a huge fan of the phrase that baptism is being reapplied, but rather the Father is carrying us back to our baptism. It's the promised benefit to the baptized. The Father is running us back. Christ is running us back to our baptism and giving us anew that declaration and saying, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, because you are the baptized. And as the baptized, you rejoice in my holy will. And yet, when you know that you have transgressed my holy will, I'm going to call you to repentance. And when you repent, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to instruct, I'm going to strengthen. And so we have this great assurance, but we also have a there and then declaration of our forgiveness, that it is most certainly true. The last phrase in this first section firmly believing that our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. That's a wonderful reality, that this is happening right in the heavenly places, right in the heavenly places. Now, as this is most certainly true, what a great comfort for us, but there's also this phrase that we haven't yet considered in this first part, which is, from the pastor as from God himself. Um, I once had an extended family member who wasn't Lutheran, think that I was just too proud of my position as a pastor and claiming too much authority. And that family member said, well, who gives you the right to forgive sins? In a sense, it's a very fair question. As the Jews weren't wrong to say in the Gospels when they say only God can forgive sins, and that is true. They just didn't believe at the time that Jesus is God, and they didn't believe, obviously, that Jesus has authority to give that authority of the office the keys, which we'll talk about later on in the section on confession, uh, they didn't believe that he had that authority to bestow that out to the church and to its apostles and pastors. And so in the same way, the question that the extended family member asked, it's not a horrible question in saying, well, what gives you that right? But it comes back to Jesus' authority, doesn't it? And that's why it was so fitting, remember, when Jesus, that one time that the lame man came, dropped through the roof, his friends lowered him through the roof, and all of the Pharisees and all of the teachers of the law were there. And Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. And then they, you know, got all up in arms and they said, now, wait a minute here. You, you know, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus asked them, well, what is easier to say, 
your sins are forgiven or rise, get up and go home. And they sort of debated about that. Well, certainly it, in some senses, it's easier to say, I forgive you because no one can know in a sense, the stark reality of whether it's happening or not as easily as seeing somebody stand up from a mat. And yet theologically, the teachers of the law knew what Jesus was getting at, that it is not easy to forgive sins because only God can forgive sins. And yet, as Luther rightly says here, when we hear the words from the pastor, we can know that it is God himself who forgives sins. If the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, this is how Jesus answered, right? He said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he used the healing as an illustration of his greater authority to forgive sins. Rise, take up your mat, and go home. And if the Son of Man has authority, like he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, then so does anyone to whom he grants that authority as his bondservants. And as we'll talk about the office of the keys and about its life in the church and with the pastors, St. Paul says that pastors should be regarded as bondservants of Christ. Matthew 16, Matthew 18, John 20, all where Jesus is talking about this authority to forgive sins. And so when the pastor declares forgiveness, and we can get into this in the next episode as we talk about, especially about private confession absolution, then we have this great last phrase, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. Again, it's not a reminder of sins being forgiven. And it's not just forgiveness temporally, but it is actually happening right in heaven. And this is why when fellow Christians forgive each other in daily life, and when you repent to one another in daily life, and when you forgive one another in daily life, realize what you're really doing is sharing that declaration of the penitent that their sins are forgiven before God in heaven. And so I try to encourage my members here, I'd encourage all hearers and listeners to the show, think about that. When someone says, I'm sorry, perhaps try not just to say, it's okay. That almost implies that it wasn't a problem that they sinned against you in the first place. But it was a problem. It's not okay that they sinned against you in the first place. But you can say, I forgive you. As a baptized child of God who knows the joy of baptism, who knows the joy of forgiveness, then I share that with you also. Uh, if you're not comfortable with that, or if that feels, quote-unquote, too authoritative, then you can say Christ forgives you. This is the joy of the baptismal life. And in that hamster wheel image, think about how we go through daily life. You go out into daily life, you resist temptation, resist temptation, resist temptation, and then all of a sudden the devil creeps in, temptation creeps in, you sin, and then the call to repentance, repent, 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 you repent, and then you've come full circle because the absolution, in the absolution, Christ is carrying you right back to your baptism. And he's saying, I forgive you because of this, because of the cross applied to you in your baptism. And in that baptismal life, you may now live, as you said, Sean, you live deeper in your baptism daily, and you keep getting run back to it by God and being promised this baptism covers you all your days. Absolutely, and covers your neighbor too. And I am with you. I, it's a big encouragement that we, as Christians, and we live our baptized life, that we use words of forgiveness. I'm constantly teaching that with my children, and I'm sure you, with your uh, six children, I believe it is, are doing that as well, that we teach them, hey, we're Christians, we forgive one another. We go and we confess when we have wronged them, and we don't just say, oh, that's okay. We say, I forgive you. 
And very important that we have that forgiveness, which always points to Christ's forgiveness. And actually, the phrase I often encourage to use is, as God in Christ is forgiving you and me, of course, I forgive you. When I speak my forgiveness, that's the way I've tried to do that for myself. Great stuff from you today, Pastor Bestel. As always, thank you so much for your catechesis here on closing out the section on holy baptism with the fourth part there today, and then seeing how that transitions and leads beautifully into confession in that fifth chief part of the catechism. Lots of parts here. It gets very confusing at times, but uh, as we move there into confession, we'll cover a little more of that when we convene for Concord next time. So that's all we have for today. We look forward to gathering together with you next time with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. Thank you so much for stopping by today. Until next time, keep confessing, church.